0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Anthrax is in the mail edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast, and this is an historic day on this podcast. Because usually this podcast is very Brookings heavy, and that two of my three special guests, my friends, my co hosts, really, always from Brookings. But today, not so. But I am joined, as always, by my friend Ben Littis of uh, Brookings. Hey. And Lawfare. Hey. And also by my special guest, my compatriot, my partner in crime, my reporting buddy, Nancy Youssef of The Daily Beast. Hello,
1: hello, hello. Hi.
0: Now it's the Daily Beast, heavy right? Has. So it's the
2: first time that Daily Beast people outnumber Brookings. That's right, on, absolute on rational security. Are you scared, ben? I'm. Let me just put it: we're still in Brookings space, so so <laughs> so you guys can outnumber me, but you can't attack me. We can't outnumber the building, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, welcome, Nancy. Thank
0: you very I much for being here. So excited and to be our here. special guest. And Nancy and I don't actually usually work in the same office during the day because you're in the Pentagon and I'm usually in the bureau. We're running around, so. It's nice we actually get to see each other rather than just talk to each other, which we do a lot. Um, This week on the show, the Senate passes the USA Freedom Act, why do Americans hate government surveillance but tolerate big corporate data aggregators, and anthrax in the Pentagon, plus in our object lesson, mourning a screen icon of sorts, and a new day in national security publishing, which we'll get to later in the show. Um, First, let's start with Wordplay. Actually, I'm going to go ahead and go first because this is sort of big news at the moment. Uh, The Senate on Tuesday, what day is it? The recording on Wednesday, the Senate on Tuesday passed the USA Freedom Act. Uh, And I think everybody who voted for this bill or backed it should give themselves a big pat on the back. Don't you feel freer, free now? I certainly feel freer, freer of this goddamn story, for one. Uh, But they should give themselves a big pat on the back because they have all guaranteed that the Patriot Act will never be rescinded. Uh, I see this very much as a big win for the NSA. Uh, and I think that it's a big loss for Rand Paul. Uh, I think it's also a big loss for Mitch McConnell, who I think was kind of humiliated in the way he managed this. And if you read between the lines of a lot of quasi-victory kind of victory statements by privacy and civil liberties groups today, I think they recognize what is true, which is that this is not really the bill they wanted, and I do not think it makes that many substantive changes to surveillance. And in the process, I think it legitimized, arguably, the Patriot Act and became... Not so much even a vote for the USA Freedom Act. Frankly, a vote to restore authorities of the Patriot Act that have expired.
2: Discuss. I think that's right. So, on so first of all, on your suggestion that this is a victory for NSA, I was at NSA on Monday, uh, for actually what was actually a very moving event. It was Law Day, and the uh, a uh, Sheldon Whitehouse sent the senator uh, came and gave a speech, which I'll discuss later. But. Um, but they also gave an award uh to Raj Day who has been the long serving uh general counsel there who during the Snowden era and it was or post Snowden era and it was a, it was actually quite a moving event but one of the things that was striking about it was that the uh was the disgust with the Senate for not being able to do its job and pass this bill. Mm -hmm. And the subtext of that disgust is that, you know, playing games with these authorities is very, very damaging to operators. And, you know, that creates uncertainty that's very damaging to operators and the subtext of that is that you then vote to renew these authorities, and what you've effectively done is, you know, given certainty and confidence to that group of people. They know what uh, what landscape they're operating in now for the next few years. Uh, and lost in this discussion is the fact that when we first passed the Patriot Act and when it was renewed, the controversial issue was not data you know you know mass collection of of phone records the controversial issue was roving wiretaps and the lone wolf uh terrorist provision uh under FISA which you know both of which were subjects that occupied huge civil libertarian attention and you know the lone wolf provision I wrote a long editorial in the Washington Post um expressing anxiety about it on constitutional grounds and so it wasn't just you know you know, fiery civil libertarians who had anxieties about those provisions. And these are now the consensus provisions that, you know, we... we They're not controversial. They're the baby that got thrown out with the bathwater for three days. And, you know, and when Jim Comey talked about, you know, why we need to pass this bill you know, part of the reason was, yeah, the 215 stuff is important, but hey, I need the roving wiretaps, and that stuff's totally uncontroversial. And I think that does show how far the comfort level with, you know, with, um, you know, techniques that were not Consensus at all ten years ago, which today are consensus. Partly because I, you know, I don't think there's any evidence that the roving wiretap provision has been abused, and well, it's barely been used. Well, the roving, roving wire roving wiretaps in the criminal context are are used all the time. Um, in the FISA context, they're a little bit less common. Um, but the one that's never been used is the is the lone wolf provision. And that's a kind of a theoretical problem that the... I mean, it was passed in response to the Zacharias Massawi case. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, passed at a time when people believed, you know, including me, that there were going to be a lot of Zacharias Massawis running around. And it turns out there actually aren't very many, you know, truly lone wolf terrorists. They tend to... terrorists tend to network... um, and that networking behavior is what gives you a lot of investigative ins and leverage. And so the truly lone wolf, even if you think about like people like the Tsarnaev brothers, they were brothers, right? There's two of them. Um, and so you know people don't generally do things completely by themselves. And and so uh, you know the provision has been. A not subject to any abuse, but B not useful or significant either.
0: Yeah, so you mean you've been covering this landscape, and particularly on the military side, really since like nine eleven. And you and I talk a lot about how both of our careers kind of were forged by this event. So I mean, like, what has been your reaction, particularly as as a reporter covering the military side of this, where obviously there are all kinds of intelligence tools and things that they use too? But like, what were sort of your impressions about this debate and? kind of where it all ended
1: up. About the Patriot Act? <laughs> yeah, and
0: like kind of what happened in the past couple of weeks. Well, I
1: have kind of a different vantage point in the sense that um, I'm seeing it from how the military responding on the ground in places like Iraq and Syria and what, they're, what they consider sort of relevant intelligence and not. To me, what was most interesting was that all these laws seem to be reactions to something, to a particular attack, and there and there has been a hesitancy to make any major changes because nobody wants to be responsible for something happening and taking something away. And you feel that um, in the military all the time, the sort of the the aftershock. You have policies and strike campaigns and and, and other um, uh, military military campaigns that are being carried out, not necessarily because they're the most powerful means to go after a group like ISIS, but this climate that I think was born in part from the Patriot Act and in the post-911 world of people wanting to do something mm. out of fear of being seen of not doing enough or worse yet, taking something away should an attack happen. And to me, that's the context in which we live in. And when I was watching, obviously, a little bit more afar because I'm i I'm, I'm, all, I'm enthralled with... Um,
0: There's some stuff going on in Syria and
2: Iraq lately.
1: (laughs) Occasionally. Um, So it's always interesting to me the context in which these come up because that's the consistent theme that I think comes from Mm -hmm. the intelligence world and the military world, this this constant reaction and putting in policies and laws and even military strategy um, uh, as a provision in case something happens. Not necessarily because it's the most prescient, or the most forward-leaning, or the most aggressive means of doing something. And to me, that's been the connective yeah. thread.
0: Just don't just stand there, do something.
1: Yeah, I mean, we see that with ISIS, the campaign yeah. against ISIS. I
0: mean, one thing, <clears throat> one thing I will—I I do want to say about the USA Freedom Act, I, mean, I don't want to, you know, that is actually there. Is a, there is a piece of this legislation that we should send just a, little, like, a couple minutes talking about. That is a significant advance for transparency and arguably privacy. Well, there are several
2: of them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, i can
0: going to complain this completely as like a giant loss for, for privacy activists and advocates, but, you know, there will now be a requirement that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court uh, publish a significant opinions. There may be some debate over what's going to qualify as a significant opinion, but there is a presumption that a relatively opaque, nearly opaque process that is very rarely opened up to any kind of public scrutiny now will be... As a matter of, you know, expectation and routine, open to that scrutiny in some cases. There'll be, um, uh, sort of a panel of lawyers, I guess if you want to call them that, that will be at the court that will sort of argue the other side on matters of constitutional and legal significance. Um, you know, Ben, what are some other, like, you know, pieces of this that you think are significant enough that actually you could look at this if you were somebody who's been arguing for more transparency
2: in? Kind of chalk that up as a win, and that might actually make the process better. Right, right. So, so look, I, I actually, I actually, there are aspects of this bill that I really don't like, um, but I do think it falls very much into the category of genuinely honorable compromise that a lot of people deserve a lot of credit for. Um, one of them is the group of civil liberties activists associated with the Center for Democracy and Technology, who really, uh, did a lot of hard work to craft sort of imaginative compromises. Another one is Bob Litt, who's the general counsel of the DNI, for for the DNI. And there was, there is, you know, nobody who studies this area closely looks at this bill and says, this is exactly the bill for which I would pray. But, uh, if the question is, do all of the major players in this who aren't, you know, crazy, get something out of it? The answer is yes. And, and have to give something up, too. Yes. And look, if you believe, as many civil libertarians believe, that there is something pernicious, dangerous, and, and, and potentially tyrannical... About mass collection of metadata, and that has been what you know what people have been arguing since the metadata program leaked, um, It has to be significant that this ends that program and ends not just that program but as Julian Sanchez of Cato has pointed out. Preclude similar programs under other statutes, which, by the way, just letting this program expire, as Rand Paul wanted to, would not have done. It could have been recreated under different authorities. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think, you know, that is a, you know, given the way people feel about bulk collection of metadata, it has to be significant that this ends bulk collection of metadata. And I don't think we should, we should, uh, we should Make less of that than it really is. Uh, the second thing is that, as you point out, the transparency reforms and the process reforms associated with VISA are significant. And this is an institution that has functioned almost entirely in secret. In the last year and a half, it has been publishing a lot of stuff. And this bill would codify the obligation to do what it has in fact been doing, and that's a very significant thing. It's a huge change in practice on the part of the court, and it's a huge, and it's a significant thing that this codifies in law the obligation to the new set of procedures rather than the old set of procedures. And then similarly, it requires a whole lot of disclosure from NSA, again, of stuff that NSA has begun disclosing on its own, but it could stop. Now it can't stop. And it affirmatively permits um, telecommunications and internet companies that have been subject to certain types of gag orders to publish aggregate data about how often they are giving what sort of information to the government. So I do think it creates... A genuinely different operating environment now one that we have kind of migrated to as a matter of practice anyway, so I think I suppose if you're a very pessimistic civil libertarian or a triumphant intelligence community person, it you could probably argue truthfully it doesn't require much of us that we're not doing anyway already. On the other hand, they weren't doing this 18 months, two years ago. Right. And so it codifies fine. it as a set of obligations. So I don't think, you know, I, I know a lot of civil libertarians are feeling like they should have gotten more. I tell you, a lot of people in the intelligence community are appalled at how much they're getting. Um, and Which is so,
0: hilarious, by the way.
2: <laughs> look, I mean, you know... Every community has its blinders, but I think if you look at it from the the zoom-out perspective of did the democracy in this case balance the many competing and mutually contradictory expectations of different communities, I I think the answer is that it did, notwithstanding the shenanigans of Rand Paul and the kind of ill-considered crazy rearguard action of the majority leader and, uh, you know, a group of conservative senators. Uh, one other thing that I think is important about the USA Freedom Act spiritually is that it really is the first time that since 9-11, other than the largely forgotten episode, forgotten despite the a certain book by Shane Harris, um, of the total information awareness um, where Congress, you know, slapped General, uh, Admiral Poindexter in the face. Um, it is really the only time that Congress has come in and said, this major authority that you think you need, we are taking away slash amending in, uh, in the interests of limiting surveillance. And I think that that is a, you know, a, a spiritually important thing for a democracy to do every now and then, quite apart from the merits of the particular questions on which I don't actually have a problem with the with the underlying program. I should actually
0: call him. I should sit down and do a Q and A with him about this whole past two years and see what he thinks.
2: It would be his, his is a perspective on the yes. last two years that would be very it would interesting. Be very interesting. I'll call him. He's not doing anything right now.
0: Um, ben, let's go to your wordplay, which is sort of keep kind of keeping on the same track. Um, uh, a, a speech by Senator Whitehouse at the NSA, which is why you were at the NSA, aside from the fact that you are a noted NSA apologist, and, like, go out for, like, tea and cookies and
2: kickball games and whatever freaky stuff. Let the record there. reflect I've never played kickball with the NSA. Um, so I don't normally... Um, find myself moved and engaged intellectually by speeches by by, most s- by senators <laughs> um, and I was um, but in this case and not just because the last chunk of the speech um, involves some research that I did on Ben Franklin but actually for other reasons um, I was found myself both, engaged and somewhat moved by this speech that Sheldon Whitehouse gave at NSA the other day. Um, the basic thesis of it, um, so first of all, it was interesting because it was a quite passionate liberal defense of the intelligence community. And it was, you know, not just a defense, but a defense in the language of, you know, progressivism and liberalism. And that we have not heard very much. You know, when Diane Feinstein has defended intelligence activities, she's done it in the language of these are necessary and important, not in the language of, hey, there's an important progressive value at stake here. Um, and the second element of it was that he linked the attacks and the suspicion of NSA to larger efforts by... Um, mostly conservative and business forces to discredit government regulatory activities in general. Um, and it's a, I, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of sort of populist rhetoric in it about, you know, people versus power in, in this vocabulary, the power being, you know, Google and Facebook and industry, not government, that I, um, you know, doesn't actually move me particularly, but I thought it was a very interesting reformulation in progressive terms of issues that we tend to not associate with left and right, but associate with libertarian versus sort of more statist visions. So um, he, I'll just read one little excerpt from it, um, which the full text of which I've adapted and posted on Lawfare for those who are interested. It says, NSA personnel know better than anyone that by far the greatest collector of data on ordinary Americans is not our government, but the private sector entities gathering personal data for marketing and commercial purposes. And the most malevolent threat for an individual American is not our government, but the vast army of hackers, many sponsored by foreign countries, who are constantly trying to steal our personal and financial information. Against these hackers, government is our defense." And yet, the plainly observable fact to anyone paying attention to the debate we are having in Congress is that Americans have become much more skeptical of government intelligence gathering, while at the same time willingly accept that corporations learn virtually every detail of their lives. Indeed, some of the most successful internet companies today are really information companies, and the most valuable commodity they possess is data about their customers. So I ask you this. Why is it that a popularly elected and democratically accountable government, the democracy in which Americans take such pride, is more suspect than immensely large and wealthy private corporations? It was not always thus. And so I think it's a, it's a very interesting, uh, different argument, just as Rand Paul on the right is adopting a lot of populist rhetoric of the left in attacking you know intelligence the intelligence community and NSA in particular this strikes me as an interesting counterattack where where white house is using sort of left wing history and rhetoric in a in a um in a defense of government and its intelligence activities mm-hmm. as part of that there's definitely things in that speech that I really
0: agree with and that resonate with me. <clears throat> um, uh, for the sake of argument, I'll mount, I'll, I'll attempt the counter-argument, which is simply that Facebook doesn't have guns, the government does. And, you know, Lexis, or Nexus and Axiom can't throw you in jail, but the FBI can. And so, I mean, what does he have to say about you know, the fact that, you know, we're more skeptical about government authorities, particularly because it is government authority?
2: Well... Right. So so he actually does address this point, albeit not in a a specially developed fashion. Uh, He says, I readily concede that government should be subject to a higher standard because the government ultimately has the power to prosecute its citizens, to use force, and to deprive people of liberty and property. But to me, at least, there seems to be more to the popular suspicion of government than just that. And he goes on to uh talk about right-wing um uh fear of black helicopters and blue helmets and uh more to the center, vast what he calls vast commercial interests that have a huge stake in shaking off government regulation. So he concedes your point, and I don't think anybody would argue that the standards of government use of data should be the same as corporate use of data. But his argument is really that there's more going on to the suspicion than that those concerns would lead you to. Yeah. I don't know, Nancy, what do you think?
1: Well, it's funny, I just kept thinking about Jade Helm and
2: <clears throat> oh, Jade Helm. <clears throat> and God. this sort
1: of manifestation of distrust of government.
0: This military N- exercise dist- that's been that's billed right. by some as an attempt to take over Texas. That's right,
1: based off of a PowerPoint presentation that was made. Yep. So when you were talking about <clears throat> this idea of distrust, not just about the ability to prosecute, that was sort of the first thing that came to mind, because the idea of the military that was so revered by by Americans, by Texans, just a few years ago, now being suspected of taking over no. the state. I mean, it was a level of distrust I couldn't wrap my mind around that we got gotten to that point because I, I've been around the, um, the military and sort of this embrace of them, almost dangerous um, embrace of them um, that they could do no wrong through the wars. And to see this sort of 180 was an extraordinary example to me of, of distrust beyond prosecution, beyond the idea that you would suspect the U.S. military when the, of yeah. taking over another state. I think speaks to that point that he mentions in the speech of a level of distress that extends beyond the ability to prosecute or take away your your, your freedoms, uh-huh,
2: uh-huh. right? And and as I say, I mean, I I think there's a lot in the speech to disagree with. I just thought it was a it was a it was a very interesting and yeah. very different formulation of the issue than we normally hear. So, from but the also senators.
1: a necessary debate. It seems like you are approaching that like the Absolutely. level Absolutely. of distrust has gotten to one that needs to now be discussed in the open rather than. And conspiracy theories. And, and we should hold, and fears. you know,
2: corporations accountable for the information yeah. they're collecting about. That we're
1: us. handing them. Yeah. Right.
2: And, and, but I think the other, the other side of this is the question, should we link suspicion of NSA to the extent that we're dealing in the irrational space rather than in the rational, you know, criticism of policy space? Should we li- link that as he does to people who deny climate change, right? You know, to people who, um, you know believe all kinds of crazy things about uh the way the you know in in what he would described as corporate fueled campaigns to discredit and denigrate government should we think of some of the of the uh objections to the activities of the intelligence community in that same vein i think it's a very interesting question i'm not sure how i feel about it honestly the
1: irony is the internet arguably has led to this ability, inability to have that debate because it that data collection allows the internet to sort of give you information that already reaffirms what you believe yeah, right. so it's a full Sorry, circle kind of chamber
0: yeah totally uh, okay uh so nancy let's go to your wordplay um is there anthrax in the pentagon is that a problem? I don't know. You work there. You tell me. You work in the building. Well,
1: I'm around you, so you. Yeah, might...
0: yeah. yeah. So
2: you've been around. At anthrax is contagious. Really? Yep. Yeah.
1: Oh, it you is, know.
2: it is not contagious. Well, then I'm
1: not getting tested today. There's sort of anthrax in the Pentagon. More importantly, there is a Pentagon that doesn't know where its anthrax is. Oops. So, this has been going on since Memorial Day weekend, where there's this. So, let me give it a little background. So. One of the things that emerged—I don't know if you guys remember—the anthrax letter threat of 2001, where sure. somebody was sending letters to Senator Daschle, or, you know, Tom Brokaw, and the National Enquirer—and in the context of post-9/11, it was seen as a bioterrorism threat, and and there were laws and and systems put in place for that potential external threat. Um, and 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 one of them was to give more funding for anthrax research, and so this is sort of regulated in part through the government. Through the military, so there's a proving ground um, in Dugway, Utah, and they essentially distribute this anthrax to be done uh, for research, and what's interesting is because of that funding, there were more and more labs available. It it, it grew 40 times. Wow. Yeah. And yet there weren't really more safety measures put in place, even after it was discovered that the anthrax threat was from an internal threat a a a a scientist, scientist. Bruce Ivins, um, who was um, going to be charged in 2008 and then... Um, committed suicide. And so, since Memorial Day, the military has been revealing that it was shipping live anthrax spores to now 12 states and three countries. Mm. Yesterday we learned it was Canada, two labs in Canada. One went to a US military base in Korea. And so, what the idea is, those live anthrax spores are supposed to be dead, but the idea is that those anthrax spores are used for research, are used for testing. And as it turns out, yesterday, the Pentagon received some the Pentagon Force Protection Agency, which is basically the police force of the Pentagon, received it to basically test its systems, except you're not, you don't need live to do it. So why they were sending live and the fact yeah. that they can't track it. And it's extraordinary to me that this sort of measures that were put into place in 2001 have not been adjusted at all. It's, it's unclear to me why you need to be sending live anthrax, why you're not tracking it. As someone said to me, Your local Walmart has more security than a U.S. biological weapons lab. So how it's, it's, and I guess I'm sort of shocked because I deal with the wars in Iraq and Syria, which are so uh, combed over, right? That bioterrorism is sort of put on a shelf and nobody's really looked at it. And this is as, this has exposed it because the military cannot tell you where those, that anthrax was sent. We're going back to um, anthrax samples from 2006 now and nobody knows where it was sent. Nobody knows if they're live spores or dead spores. No, and the only way they found out was they sent it to a lab in Maryland, which basically said, um, "Hello, you just sent us live anthrax," and notified the Pentagon and the CDC.
0: Oh my God!
1: So everybody's kind of going backwards now to figure out where, who sent anthrax to whom, and, and when. And isn't I mean,
0: this this is what, what's so crazy about, and appalling about this is that after the <laughs> anthrax attacks in two thousand one. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but one of the vulnerabilities that the government tried to address was the presence of anthrax in laboratories and how easy it might be for someone to, like Al-Qaeda, to get into a lab where they have anthrax or some other dangerous agent. And now we find out that actually, you know, the Defense Department has been proliferating these samples and it's contributing to the very problem. But see,
1: that led to more funding and actually more people (coughs) having access. Right. Rather than what you would, I mean, logically think, if you're worried about that, wouldn't you increase the measure? But everybody who's gunning for the money. Who's going to turn it down? And we're creating research and, and other things um, to, to have access to the money and to the funding and to the research. It's, it's,
2: so yeah. so a, cu- a couple of questions. Um, how, do we know anything about what the volume of the samples in
1: question are? We do not. We know they came from three master samples, and that's as of today. I mean, let me be clear. There there are people in the Pentagon who are bracing themselves for upwards of close to hitting three digits in terms of labs affected because it keeps coming out every day. We don't know the number. We, we only know three master samples. We don't know the amount of anthrax. We don't know if it was alive. Even the one that went to the Pentagon, it's not clear whether they were live spores or, or dead. Right. So they don't know.
2: Right, because so... Unlike with certain other pathogens, with anthrax, it really matters what the volume is. Because anthrax is... First of all, because it's non-contagious, it will only affect the number of people that the spores immediately come into contact with, which is why it's a very useful weapon, because it it, it doesn't spread the way, say, smallpox would spread. You can hit an area... Um, and so if you, if, if what we're talking about is a test tube is sent to, uh, oh, the other thing about anthrax is it's very easy to collect in nature because it's, you know, so if what you're talking about is, you know, a certain number of small samples of unmilled, you know, small volumes of anthrax sent to different places in the world, that's really, really bad, but it's probably not that dangerous. That um, if what we're talking about is significant samples of yeah. weaponized anthrax, no,
1: no. I, I that's a very
2: different thing.
1: I think we're talking more about the former. but I And for me, it's not so much the public health issue, because there's no indication, as you say, that it's the risk of the public health. But there are two things that come to mind. Number one, the CDC had a similar problem last year, right. and there weren't corrections put in place. And the military has had this problem of not accidentally sending very dangerous things. It's the accountability problem that's kind of come into play more than the public health threat. I mean, the most sort of notorious example in the Pentagon was in 2007 when they actually sent six nuclear warheads across the country, you know, and led to the firing of the chief of staff of the Air Force and the the secretary of the Air Force. And so... That's, to me, the problem, that here we are in 2015 with something that you once considered a bioterrorism threat, and there's no way, clear metric, to determine um, how that I mean, I think no, no, you no, raise no, no, great no, points. No, no, yeah. you're,
2: you're, you're absolutely... Look, the principle... First of all, every, uh, anthrax is still considered a major bioterrorism threat. In fact, it's probably considered, uh, at the doable, easily doable level, it's by far the most significant bioterrorism yeah. threat. Um The principle that, you know, in a world in which we demand that countries uh, give up um, weapons of mass destruction programs and that we're willing to go to war with other countries over their handling of biological agents, uh, among other things, the principle that we should know what our government, that our government should know what it's doing with its biological agents is not a tough one. Right. You know, there was a scientist at Texas Tech University who mishandled plague samples and was not entirely candid about it. And he was prosecuted by the FBI uh, or prosecuted by the Justice Department and imprisoned. And, you know, so the government, when when people other than the government mishandle uh, and don't keep track of their biological agents effectively, the government takes that really, really seriously. And so I think the general... The the point that you're making that it is really crazy that the that the Pentagon can't tell you where its biological agents are uh, is is a really important one and you know this is an area where uh, because it has tended not to produce major civilian casualties yet right. like That's bombings right. we right. don't think about it very much except when something happens. Um, it, is, it remains the most dangerous potential area of terrorism. And thank God the terrorists haven't figured this out yet. Yes. Most of them aren't very bright. And, um, you know, the idea that the government is doing this research is great. It's important stuff to do, and they should be keeping track of where their anthrax is. Yeah.
1: You know, I think the other thing that was really shocking to people is the idea that anthrax would be shipped in the mail. Because that's how they were sending it. Because we, we think of anthrax in the mail as the 2001, the powder. Right. But this is right. actually this, something the, to the, feed the, reach. Yeah, right.
2: exactly. These are the, 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 the spores. Yeah,
1: but to me, the, the most amazing thing is that you could have a policy and approach that literally sat on the shelf since 2001. And it remains unclear to me why they need to... You can test those same facilities with um, dead anthrax. So why you're shipping live spores is really unclear to me. And I think it's worth asking how much of this is research, how much of this is um, testing, how much of it is necessary to use anthrax in the first place. I think there's been a reticence to um, cut the cut the shipment because of the funding issue. I think the funding issue is really. Um, a central part of this. So it's become so serious that they're going to have a briefing today at the Pentagon this afternoon with the um, Deputy Secretary of Defense, Bob Work an Undersecretary, and a doctor who knows about this. So there is now sort of an acknowledgement that they have to address this because you cannot keep sending a spokesman out day after day and be like, oh, sorry, there was another lab. Our oh, heads like...
0: going to roll real quick?
1: I don't know. In the CDC case, it was only a mid-level administrator. Who was fired to your point about Ben about how sometimes in private sector people are punished more severely it's hard for me to imagine that somebody doesn't pay for this I mean we're we're at nearly 30 labs at this point it's hard for me to imagine that 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 it wouldn't happen but but who knows because it, the, my fear is that we're in this environment where there's no nobody really accountable that it's sort of so decentralized that pinning it on one person becomes very difficult but I think people should anticipate that we'll hear about more states and more labs and more countries, and if not today, certainly in the, in the days and weeks ahead.
0: Okay. Uh, let's move on to object lesson. Uh, I'm going to go first in mine, and I'm going to show everyone my object lesson this week. Whoa.
1: That was <laughs> not what I was expecting. <laughs> not,
0: me neither. This is a picture of um, the uh, recently deceased actress Betsy Palmer. Um Hugging Jason, as in Jason Voorhees, because she played Mrs. Voorhees. Uh, Betsy Palmer was this uh, the, the villain of the very first Friday the 13th movie. She described herself as the queen of the slashers. Um, she died this week. She's the woman who gets her head cut off at the end of the first Friday the 13th movie. You guys have all seen this. Um, she actually said that she took the job. Uh, because uh, she thought the script was total crap, but uh, her agent said she'd get $1,000 a day for $10, for, for 10 days of work, and she really wanted to buy a new Volkswagen Scirocco. So she got ten grand and bought the Volkswagen, and then became a screen icon. And she'd had a really like long career on TV, and like, she was a game show contestant and a news presenter. Um, anyway, I'm bringing her in just because, I think for a generation of people, myself included, uh, it was that movie, and Betsy Palmer in particular, that taught uh, many of us to have irrational fears of, let's see, um, camps, camp cooks, boys hiding in lakes, uh, having sex while the kids are swimming and you should be lifeguarding, people in the woods. <laughs> I mean Just like every sort of like fear of the outside world and goblins and demons and spooks and all that really, at least for me anyway. Came from this movie. An it, icon it, it, of irrational security. Totally, totally. And it just, it was the greatest twist in this movie when you found out at the end that it was like this kind of old lady that was butchering all these teenagers. It was really something, but obviously it gave rise to a whole genre of slasher films that were just, you know, fueling irrational fears and, uh, for, you know, years and years to come. But so Betsy Palmer,
2: uh, will miss you. Uh, Ben, what's your object? My object, uh, which, uh, I'm going to show you both now, Ooh. is the uh, new Lawfare website, which is uh, launching on Monday. Um, Lawfare uh, we, seems to no longer be a small blog, um, and so we have spent the last year trying to build an architecture for it that will actually support the way its community of readers are Behaving and using it, which is, you know, not simply as a, as a news source and a source of analysis, but as a research tool, as a, um, a way of accessing a very large collection of historically important documents, um, and as a provider of very highly differentiated content feeds uh, that cover a lot of different areas. So it's sort of the story of the website is kind of a story of how this institution developed over the last five years. And... Uh, we're spending a lot of time this week trying to get it in shape, ready for launch, and I hope everybody will enjoy it.
0: And the site, the uh, the,
2: the not the mock-up, it's live, it's just not public yet, but the, uh, that we've seen is, uh, it's great, it looks awesome. Thank you. And we will, I will post a screenshot of that on our show page uh, uh, for those who want a sneak peek of what Lawfare will look like on Monday. Great. Fantastic. Congrats, Ben. Congrats, Lawfare. Um, Nancy, what is your...
1: My object lesson is the Frontline piece that came out this week, Obama at War. Ooh, yes. And I bring that up because, you know, as a news person, you're so used to, and particularly when you're covering war, dealing with these horrific events immediately. I mean, we always say journalism is the first draft of history, and when you're writing it, you sometimes don't have the um, luxury of stepping back. And so to see um, a documentary sort of thread, um, the last um, four years, uh, almost five years of warfare together, and how the administration, the, the details they left out and their sort of explanation, the ones that they let in, and the way we got to this point in Syria and those little quarter, maybe few days, months at most, where, where things could have gone differently, where a different decision could have put it on a completely different trajectory. To sort of see the summary of it was sort of a wonderful lesson for me about the need to step back when you're covering these wars, and be reminded of how one got here, and and how already people are trying to rewrite the history in terms of their own um, contributions to, in this case, the war in Syria.
2: So as somebody who uh, helped as much as you did to contribute to the first draft, what, how do you rate their effort at a second draft and a step back? as a
1: um, you know, Did the they thing, do a good job with it? Well, the thing that struck me the most was this idea of saying that they were constantly caught by surprise. We were caught by surprise by, by ISIS's um, takeover of Mosul. Well, not exactly, because Brett McGurk, um, who's on the ground for the State Department there, was warning for weeks that yeah. Mosul was in jeopardy. This idea of sort of being... Um, hit violently with decisions was the one that struck me the most because I don't think it was that simple. I think there were warnings that maybe people chose to ignore or to under underestimate in terms of the threat that was there. The Iraqis ran away, which shouldn't have been completely surprising. Maybe the fact that they were wearing civilian clothes underneath was, but otherwise, no. And that's what struck me, this idea of being saying of people saying, we were hit violently with this unexpected choice, when actually, they were, when you're on the ground and you're covering this as I've done. You can see these things coming, and so that was what was surprising to me. That when you have six thousand miles of distance, things that are so obvious on the ground are seen as sudden disasters mm-hmm. from here.
0: Yeah, I watched it last night, and it really is like in classic frontline style. It's the pullback and the how did we get here? Yeah, and it's uh, yeah, it was it was really moving too. I thought I think uh, Martin Smith and that team did a, a really good job with it, so recommend it. Um, okay, that's it for the show this week. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to all of our other shows on our website, spaghettionthewallproductions.com. You can follow us uh, at R-A-T-L Security on Twitter. Uh, when you download the podcast, from wherever you download the podcast, please, please, please leave a rating and comment and helps others find the show as well. Our podcast is edited by Jen Howell. Our music is performed this week by the Military Anthrax Marching Band. No, no, no. no. Wouldn't that be good if they had one? Anthrax on the
2: March Band. They might. Oh, that would have even been better. Yeah.
1: I uh, think it should
2: be Anthrax. What? who? The Anthrax go marching one by one. <laughs> exactly.
1: Wow. Uh, there we go.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Now, of course, our music is performed, as always, by Sophia Yan. Uh, on behalf of my friend Ben Wittes and our wonderful special guest, Nancy Youssef. Thank you for being oh, here. Oh, so
1: much fun. Thanks for
0: having me. I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. Thanks for
2: listening.